Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 this morning, as I said in the opening, we will be devoting the next, uh, including this week, four Sundays to the Advent season and focusing upon the incarnation of Jesus. But I do want to handle it somewhat in a different way. There are many ways to preach during the Advent season. Again, last year I preached from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, various passages about the coming of the Messiah. Another way, probably the more common way to preach uh, the Advent season is through the birth narrative of either Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, which focus upon, again, the birth of Jesus. And we've done that in years gone by as well. But this year... I do want to use this season to focus upon the incarnation of Christ, but uh, do it a little bit different way. Not by looking at Old Testament prophecy, not even by looking at the birth narratives themselves, but rather look at it theologically. Typically, you are well aware, we preach through books of the Bible. Typically, we preach, we begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and we don't stop till we get to the last chapter and the last verse. And we don't skip verses. We exegetically move through verse by verse by verse through books of the Bible. We call that expository preaching. But here, for this season, for the next few weeks, I'd like to approach the doctrine of the Incarnation in a more topical way. Uh, instead of a passage, and we're going to look at it verse by verse by verse by verse, we're going to look at it in a more topical or a more theological way. And again, this is not uh, the way that I'm most comfortable, but I think that for our purposes in this season, it's good to take this approach. Uh, it allows us to uh, focus upon a topic with greater clarity, with, with greater understanding than sometimes we're able to do going verse by verse. And I, I think that's the case here as we look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So let's think together this morning from Philippians chapter 2. I just want to read a couple of passages that speak to us of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Flip over a couple of pages to Colossians, the very next book. Colossians chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 15. He, that's Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then I'll read from Colossians chapter 2, just verse 9. For in him, that's in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning and we are grateful for this another Advent season that you have given us the opportunity to go through. You have sustained us. You have preserved us and allowed us an opportunity to meditate more fully, more richly upon the mystery of the Incarnation. Father, we thank you for Jesus. But Lord, we know you want us to love Him supremely. You want us to treasure Him the way you do. And Father, I pray that you would use this study to bring even greater clarity to our thoughts and minds when it comes to the Incarnation of Christ. Father, I pray that both in this message and in the ones to come, that, Lord, we would be edified through what we hear. More so, we would be moved to worship and to adore You, the one true God, and the Christ whom You have sent. Lord, let us not be taken by the season and just bland, common worship of the newborn king, but let it come from a heart that is captivated by the wonder of who this newborn king is. Lord, speak to us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. We all confess with one voice that Jesus is God. Amen? That's a shared conviction that you can't be a Christian and not confess that. If you're here this morning and you don't agree with that statement, that Jesus is God, it's best for you to know now rather than to go any further in your life. You cannot be a Christian and not confess that Jesus is God. So I presume this morning that we share this conviction. We agree with Paul who says about Jesus in the passage we just said, Colossians 2.9, for in Him, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. We read that and we say, Amen. Jesus is fully God. The full deity dwells in the person of Christ. We agree with Thomas who after being convinced of the reality of the resurrection, proclaims, looking into the resurrected Christ, my Lord and my God. He's putting these things together. He's attaching to the person of Christ. This is God. Only God could do this. We read that and we affirm that statement and say, yes, Jesus is God. That is indeed true. But there's more. There's more that needs to be said if we're truly going to uphold that truth, if we're going to to understand 
the wonder of Jesus being God, if we're going to handle that truth with the precision, the care, and the clarity that that statement deserves, then more needs to be thought about. Let me put it this way. Our tendency as creatures is to bring God down to our level, is to bring God down low. And that's not a good thing. The God who has revealed himself to be high and holy and the exalted one, one not like us, one separate from us, separate from all of creation, we tend to make God in our own image, to bring him low, to take what is unmoldable and try to mold him into something we can handle, something we can understand, something we can conquer, something we're comfortable with, something that's less threatening. We've been down this path before. A low view of God leads to a higher view of yourself. When God is holy, Isaiah comes undone. But when God is brought down to our level, He's just like us. When God is brought down to our level with a low view, it leads to a higher view of yourself. And when you think higher of yourself, what do you think of your sin? Not very much at all. So that leads to a lower view of sin. And if you have a low view of God, a high view of your sin, a high view of yourself and a low view of your sin, how much of a Savior do you really need there? There's not much of a gap there, is there? But a high view of God leads to a low view of yourself and a high view of your sin that leaves you desperate, hopeless, and helpless. There is no way for a God as holy as this and a sinner as wretched as you, there is no hope for reconciliation unless that God does the unthinkable and provides a way. But how big is that gap? How big of a glorious Savior do you need to fill that with? That's an eternal gap that has to be shaped. Well, think about that. A low view of God, a high view of self, a low view of sin, a small need of a Savior leads to a very careless way to think of Christ. A very imprecise, incomplete way of to think of Christ, that dishonors Christ and dishonors God. God is glorified when we think of Him rightly and we think of ourselves rightly and we understand our sin the way He sees it. And that this God has provided a way of salvation through His Son. To combat that, I'd like for us to fix our minds this Advent season upon the mystery of the Incarnation. And I call it a mystery because not just it's difficult to understand, it's impossible to understand. I'll say that again. It's impossible to understand. Let us not be counted among those who puff our chest out 
and we pride ourselves in our deep theological knowledge of the incarnation, if that is our attitude, it shows how little we really understand it at all. We can confess the incarnation is true, that God took on flesh. That's what we mean by incarnation. We can confess that it's true. We can speak of it in precise ways. But we will never fully comprehend it. We will never fully comprehend how it is that an eternal, immaterial God, He's a spirit, how an eternal, immaterial God in a fullness, who exists outside of time and space can, in the fullness of time, enter into time and take on human flesh. If we want to boast in our knowledge of that, we really don't understand it at all. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to understand with as much clarity and precision as is possible this mystery of the incarnation. Not for the purpose of becoming experts in it, but for the purpose of being moved to greater worship of this Christ, of greater faith in this one, and living upon him with all of our being. Four sermons in this Advent season. The first this morning will focus not even upon Christ himself, but upon God, the nature of God. The second sermon in this Advent season, again, will not even focus upon Christ himself. It will focus upon the attributes of God. The third sermon will then focus upon the person of Christ with regard to the nature and the attributes of God. And then the fourth sermon, the work of Jesus. My prayer for us is that we would be edified. Not that we would become experts. Maybe we'd become even more humble. And we would come to worship and adore this Christ even more so than we already do. If we are to understand the incarnation, that is that the Son of God, the Word of God, as we've seen in John's Gospel, came in the flesh, you've got to first know something about God. Jesus came as God in the flesh. If you don't have a right understanding of God, that really means nothing. God in the flesh can become whatever you want it to become unless you first have a right understanding of the majesty, the holiness, the splendor, the wonder of who God is. Otherwise, you'll never think clearly about the incarnation. God become flesh. So what we want to do today and next Lord's Day, I think I've got it divided out that it's going to take this path, is that We're going to focus on God, who he is in his nature, who he is in his attributes. And then we can come in and talk about that God taking on flesh. And now, when you look at that baby in a manger, it's not just a, well, that's God. 
Now it's a, oh my gosh, the wonder. This is who God is. And that's who this is. And then we'll look at his work as well. This morning, I have seven statements to make us think about the nature of God. Tom's not going to allow us to spend more than just a few moments on each one of them. Seven statements this morning on the nature of God. If you're wanting a sermon title this morning, that'll be it. The nature of God. So let's dig into these things as we seek seek to set our minds in the right direction in thinking about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Number one, in understanding the nature of God, we've got to understand this. God is incomprehensible. That's really where you have to begin. God is incomprehensible. This is part of His essential nature. That means you and I cannot comprehend Him. (laughs) Just want to be very clear about that. He is always beyond our ability to understand. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how long you've studied theology and what great teachers in church history you have sat under. God is always beyond our ability to understand. Now, it may be you hear that and you think, well, why are you even continuing with the sermon? You just said we can't understand Him. So what else is there to think about? Well... That's not what we mean by incomprehensibility. What we mean by incomprehensibility is that our finite minds are not able to comprehend God fully. And there's the key word, fully. We, as creatures created by this great God, cannot know the Creator exhaustively, perfectly, fully. But don't be discouraged. We can know Him truly. You hear the difference? We can't know Him fully or exhaustively. He's just beyond anything we could imagine. But we can know Him truly. And how is that even possible? Because we're so smart? No. Because He has condescended to our level. He has come down to our weakness and to our limitations. And He has revealed himself to us in ways that we can begin to understand him truly. If we were to understand everything the Bible says about God, you still would not know God fully. You would not know him exhaustively. You would know him next to nothing compared to how he fully is. But he has come down to us to reveal to us what we cannot know fully, what we cannot know without Him, to give us some things so that we might know Him truly. And how has He revealed Himself to us? Well, three ways, and they keep getting better and better and better every time. Number one, generally He's revealed Himself to us in the world. By this we call it general revelation. General meaning it goes out to everyone in all places. And general revelation is God's revelation of Himself in creation, in nature. 
It's what we read about in Psalm chapter 19, that heavens declare the glory of God. You can look out into creation and nature and see that there is a creator. Now, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it's undeniable that creation reveals the glory of God, but man in sin has rejected that. But creation... The world reveals God, but it gets even better than that. Not only has He revealed Himself generally, He's also revealed Himself in something we call special revelation. So we have general revelation that goes out to all people in all places at all times, and that's creation. Everyone will be held accountable if there is a God and condemned for the rejection of Him because creation reveals He's there. Special revelation does not go out to all people in all places at all times. Special revelation is the Word of God, the Bible. Not everybody has a Bible today. Now in America, I mean, it's accessible. There are still places in the world that have not yet been reached with the Word of God. They haven't heard the special revelation, not just that there is a God, but the nature of this God that's revealed in the Word, the character, the attributes of this God that's revealed in the Word. It's a more special, a more full revelation of the Creator, of who He is. We can know His attributes, His character. And then there's an even more special revelation that the Word of God points us to. And that's Jesus Christ Himself. God has revealed Himself through the person of Jesus. In the face of Jesus. When we look at Jesus, Jesus says, you've looked at the Father. So by studying Jesus, we come to know exactly who God is. Because as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, in Him, the Fullness of deity dwelt. And let's just marvel at that. We just said, we can't know the fullness of God. We can't know the exhaustiveness of God. It's too much. We can know truth about God, and it's true, but it's only a small microcosm of the fullness of God. And yet, in Christ, the fullness of God that we can't even begin to know, it dwells in Him. Right off the bat, we're looking at the first piece of the nature of God, and already the glory of Christ is beginning to explode in that what we can't fathom, what we could never know, is now contained in that baby in the manger, in Christ in flesh, God in flesh, in Christ. It's because of God's revelation to us. He has determined to make Himself known to us that we can know God truly. He is incomprehensible. If He doesn't come to us, there is no chance we know Him. We can't fathom anything like Him. He's beyond our imagination. And so, even in those times when we're looking out at creation and we see the glory of God on display, in those times each day when we have Bible in hand and we're, 
reading about the attributes and character of God revealed propositionally on those pages. And when we read even more deeply into the person of Jesus Christ, we should, we should revel in that revelation. We should revel that we can know this God truly. But at the same moment that you read that and you think, my goodness, this is the truth of who God is, we should immediately turn to Him and say, but yet I know nothing. You're incomprehensible. If I'm driven to wonder by this, this is nothing compared to the fullness. God's revelation of Himself to us is an act of condescension. He stoops low to us in creation, in the Word, and in the person of Jesus Christ that we might know Him truly. The revelation of God should humble us rather than making us more prideful. But for some reason, it seems to be the other way. I bet it's true for you. It's been true for me. The more you learn about God, you start to feel good about yourself. I'm getting smart. I know more than somebody else. I have greater thoughts about God than other people. And we begin to puff ourselves up. That's our, the opposite way to think. If God reveals something of His glory to you, it is true. But be humbled because what you think you know, what you do know, pales in comparison to the full reality of Him. It's awesome to think about when God speaks to us in His Word, He speaks to us by analogy. When He reveals Himself to us, He reveals Himself to us by giving us names. He reveals Himself through us, to us through His actions in human history. We, 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 these are things that He utilizes to try to help us in our weakness, in our limitation. Let me give you an analogy of what I'm like. Let, let, me, let me give you a name. Because y'all name one another. Let me give you a name that will help you understand who I am. Never assign the analogy with God. Never assign the name directly with God. That's an act of God to help us begin to understand His glory and His greatness. But no name can label God. No name can contain God. It's a tool that He uses to help us because He's incomprehensible. You think of Moses in Exodus 30, 30, Exodus 33. God, show me your glory. God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now, what has God just said about himself? Man shall not see my face. God doesn't have a face. So what's he talking about there? He's using an analogy. He's using an analogy. He's using, we call it anthropomorphic language, human language to try to help us to understand. God doesn't have a face. 
He doesn't have a backside. How often do we say he allowed Moses to see his backside? Well, that's what it says. That's what it implies. But don't mistake thinking God has physical form. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a backside. He's using terminology to help Moses and to help us to begin to think about him. Was what Moses saw about God true? Yes. Was it fully God? No. It was not the exhaustive, unlimited glory of God. God revealed Himself to Moses in a way that Moses could handle. Why? Because God Himself says, you can't see me and survive. I am so far beyond you. If I were to reveal myself to you fully, you drop dead. Might this be a hint of why in the book of Revelation, when we see the conquering king return, immediately people are fleeing, trying to find and beg a mountain to fall upon them, trying to get as far away as possible. God reminds us of his incomprehensibility when he says things like this. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. What's he saying there? Not just that there's a big gulf that exists between me. There is that. But he's saying... Don't even begin to try to figure me out. You can't even begin. I'm so far beyond your ability to know and understand. Your thoughts, <laughs> those aren't my thoughts. And your ways, you think I'm like you? You've never known one like me. Those are not my ways. Oh, creation, I'm incomprehensible. But I, in mercy and grace, will reveal myself to you truly, not fully. This is the place to begin when we talk about the nature of God. You've got to begin here. Because anywhere else we start, we immediately go off track. Unless we begin with this reality. We cannot know God on our own. We can't know Him fully. We can't know Him exhaustively. We can know Him truly as He's revealed Himself to us. Well, with that as the foundation, we can move on and say more true things about this incomprehensible God, including number two, God is triune. And there's also a sense in which that's why you begin with the incomprehensibility of God, because we move immediately to the Trinity of God, and that's something you can't figure out. 
This is a truth beyond our ability to comprehend. We can confess it's true. This morning we've prayed to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We sang a song this morning that worshiped God as Father, God as Son, God as Spirit. We can speak of the Trinity with great care. But my goodness, our minds can't even begin to comprehend how in the world this thing works. Scripture makes it clear there's how many gods One God, one and only God, and yet he's revealed himself in three persons. Throughout Scripture, the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three different persons, but one God. And John Owen has been a great help, that great Puritan preacher of the past, helping us and reminding us that because the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, all are to be worshipped. Sometimes we tend to focus only upon the worship of the Father or only upon the worship of the Son. Rarely ever do we worship the Spirit, but if they're all God, They're all to be worshipped. They're all to be prayed to. One God, three persons. But even that, even that is a little bit misleading. When we refer to God as a person, we begin to think of three separate people. This is where our mind just begins to fall short. One God, three persons, you just can't help but think of three different people. And it's wrong to think of God as divided up that way. He is not divided. There is not division in the Godhead. He would cease to be God if at any moment any part of that Godhead were to go rogue or to differentiate itself or to separate itself from the other two. It would cease to be God. There's a classic quote from the great church father Augustine. That uh, when the question is asked, three what? Augustine asks, human language, he says, labors under the great poverty of speech. The answer has been given. This goes back to the first century. The answer has been given three what? Three persons. Not that it might be spoken, but that it might not left be unspoken. What Augustine is saying is this. Yes, that has been common to say one God, three persons, but we say three persons only because there's nothing better we've got to use. Human language just doesn't have the vocabulary to try to capture how this thing works together. One God, three persons. So when you hear three persons, Augustine says, don't think three persons, just understand we say three persons because there's nothing better for us. There's no better word for us to use. We have to use a word, otherwise it remains unspoken and that's of no help to anybody. We have to somehow try to capture this and so we use persons, but understand that even that, don't begin to think of three different persons because they're not. Does your mind begin to just explode just thinking about that? You understand what Augustine's saying there? We call it one God, three persons just because that's the best we got. And we got to say something to try to help put it together. But even that phrase, one God, three persons, is inadequate. What's the point? The Trinity is a great mystery. It belongs to an incomprehensible God. 
<laughs> it begins to a God whom we can't fully know exhaustively. It belongs to a God for whom human language is just not equipped to speak of his glories. Number three, God is incomprehensible. God is triune. Number three, God is a spirit. The third thing about the nature of God, he is a pure spirit. We've already hit on it, but I just want to be clear. God does not have a body. The Father does not have a body. Jesus has a body. But He is God incarnate. He is God in flesh. That's what makes Christ so unique. He has a flesh. The Father does not. The Son assumed flesh for the glory of God to save the people of God, to redeem us from from our sins. But God, in His most pure form, doesn't have a body. He doesn't have parts. I've oftentimes had discussions with people about this. He doesn't have emotions. God doesn't have a sense of humor. That's one of my pet peeves. Well, God must have a sense of humor to do that. He's not human. He doesn't have emotions. He doesn't have parts. He's not like us. He's a spirit. Was Jesus not clear when he says in John 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Or in 1 Timothy 1, Paul praises God, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Invisible, Paul says. If you're going to think rightly and truly about God, it is wrong to think of him as being nothing more than a bigger, better version of you. He's not. He's nothing like you. He's nothing like me. To take your characteristics and your personality and attitude and try to say, well, God's this and just more so is wrong. It's what God condemns in the Psalms. You thought I was like you. I'm not. He belongs to an entirely other order of being. We talked this morning about holiness, didn't we? Being separate from the world. Well, God is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. The only attribute of God that is upheld is being threefold. He's unique. He's one of a kind. There's nothing like Him. You and I are not like Him. He is not like us. He's the Creator. We're creatures. If He's like us, He would have to be a creation. He's divine. We are not. He is a spirit. God is incomprehensible. God is triune. God is spirit. Number four. God is self-existent. Self-existent. What we mean by that is this. 
He depends on nobody. God needs nobody. You and I are dependent. Our very existence is dependent upon a creator creating us, correct? God has no such need. He is eternal. We'll get to that in just a minute. There's never a time when he was not. He doesn't need to be brought into existence by some higher power. He is the higher power. He has no limitations. He is self-existent. We might say it this way. He is of himself. You and I? Not that way. We are absolutely dependent. We are dependent upon God to create us, to sustain us. Paul says it this way in Acts 17. It is in Him, in God, that we move and have our being. If He doesn't sustain us, we die. the very breath we're taking right now. He's supplying it. You and I are not self-existent. We are not laying in our beds at night and just self-existently we are surviving and living. It is God who does that. But God Himself is self-existent. No one created Him. No one brought Him into being. No one sustains Him. He doesn't need anyone or anything. He simply is. We talked about this often, but sometimes with our children, we say, why did God create us? And I can't tell you the number of times we hear this answer, because God was lonely. Oh, my goodness gracious. He is self-existent. He, doesn't, he has never been lonely. He is completely satisfied in himself. He needs nothing else. And it is a loving thing. He made us to find our joy in Him the way He finds His joy in Himself. He was never lonely. He doesn't need a thing. He simply is. And this is, again, He revealed Himself in names. And one of those names is I am. I am that I am. Meaning what? I am. I am the self-existent one. Not I was or will be. I am presently, always, eternally. God is self-existent, incomprehensible, triune. God is a pure spirit. God is self-existent. Number five, I believe God is infinite. Infinite. Infinite simply means he's without limit. No limitations. When we think about the infinity of God, we can apply that in a number of different areas. Number one, God is without limitations. He's infinite with regard to time. For you and I, we look at our calendar, we date all the way back to, you know, whatever, 2000, 3000 BC, and here we are, the year 2019 AD. There are set boundaries to the calendar. Whenever Adam and Eve were created, that's, I guess, day one of the calendar. God does not, is not bound by a calendar. There was never day one. 
He has always been. He always will be. He is infinite and without limitation with regard to time. He's eternal. You and I had a beginning. The earth had a beginning. The universe, there was a time when it was not. That is not true of God. We can also speak of God's infinity, His infinite being without limitations with regard not only to time, but also to space. God is omnipresent, meaning He's fully everywhere all the time. I used to have this image when I was growing up of God's omnipresent. Well, you got this big, vast universe, and so it's, maybe God is like a sheet that you just unroll, and you, as far this way in the universe, and as far as, you know, he's, omni- he's, he's everywhere, He's spread out. And that's inadequate. Because then you have parts of God that are over here and part of God that's over here and part of God that's over here. But God's omnipresence means the fullness of God is everywhere. Not you have part of Him, but the fullness of God is everywhere in every place. He's not spread out like a scroll or like a a cloth. It's almost like a pinpoint in every place. Fully God, incomprehensible God who cannot be contained is fully in every place and everywhere. There's nowhere He is not. There's nowhere, no place that the fullness of all God's perfections are not there. We have boundaries. We can only be in one place at one time. Sometimes we'd like to be in more places at one time. We can't. And God is infinite in every place and every time. We can also speak of God's infinity with regard to His power. There's no limitations with regard to time, with space, and now power. When we speak of God's unlimited power, His omnipotence, There's nothing he can't do. Well, again, for splitting hairs, I mean, he can't sin, right? He can't do anything that are outside of his perfections. But as an omnipotent God, he is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is in complete control. Everything he controls. Things visible, things invisible. Every atom, every molecule he controls. Simultaneously, God is doing gazillion things at one time. And it's not hard. He doesn't expend energy. He doesn't get tired. It is a constant supply of fullness of power that never fades. It never weakens. Over the course of time, it never decays. He is no less strong today than he was on day one of creation. That certainly can't be said of you and I, can it? As we get older, we get weaker. We decay. God's not like us. 
the moment you begin to put him in that picture, you've created an idol. We can also speak of God's infinity with regard to his knowledge. We've said his infinity, he's infinite with regard to time and space and power. We can throw one more in there, his knowledge. He knows all things. He knows all things perfectly. He knows all contingency plans by which he is not operating. Don't buy into the lie, and it's so frustrating. How many times do you hear people say, well, God knows everything because, well, he, he knows the future. God is not bound by space or time. God doesn't need to be able to look into the future to know the future. He is in the future. He is right now in the future. He is right now in the present. He is right now in the past. He is right now perfectly, sovereignly, all-powerfully, and all things right now. You and I, we can't even begin to capture this, can we? The thought that God is right here with us right now. He's everywhere right now. But just as much as he's right here right now, he is also one year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. He is already in eternity right now. And? He's in the past right now. It's almost like looking down on a parade. Again, this falls woefully short, but you can see it all. But that falls, it's not that he sees it all. He is in every part of it fully. There's never a time, never a place where he is not. God doesn't need to look into the future. He is past, present, and future. And he knows all things perfectly. He's controlling all things perfectly. He is infinite. No boundaries. No limitations. He doesn't need vehicles to try to navigate life's difficulties or times or seasons. He just is. And he is all. Sixthly, God is unchanging. Unchanging. That is to say, everything we've already said about God's nature and what we will say next week about his perfections. They always have been. And they always will be. God does not grow. God does not learn. God does not transform. God does not evolve. God is not impacted by decisions we make. Rather, our decisions are impacted by God because He is sovereign. God does not repent. God is not given to passions as we are. God is not emotional like we are. God is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. James says it this way in chapter 1, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 102, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens and the work are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you 
Well, uh, and they will all wear it like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. And then in Malachi's prophecy, God says, For I, the Lord your God, do not change. For him to change would require, there must be something wrong with him. There must have been something that in his perfections that were less than perfect. And that's not the case. Or it would mean that he's fallen from those perfections. And that's impossible. He is unchanging. You and I, that's not like us, is it? We change. We change often. But what a great comfort it is to know that God himself does not. And the last this morning, God is simple. And I'm using a theological term here. Notice the book ends. We begin with God is incomprehensible. You cannot know him exhaustively. You cannot know him fully. And we end with God is simple. Either we've gotten off track somewhere or these We've got to harmonize these two things. What do we mean? God is simple. Simple doesn't mean that he's easy. Simple means this. All that makes God, God, he is. Let me frame it this way. You and I are, we call it composite, composite beings. You and I have body parts, arms, legs, head, feet. We have attributes of personality and emotions and different things like that. And it's put those things together and it makes us who we are, right? You take all the physical, mental attributes of person, put them together and that's who we are. Well, it does not work that way with God. God is not a composite person. God is pure. He's a spirit. He doesn't consist of body and soul, of personality, of emotions. Even when we talk about the attributes of God, which we're going to look at next week, some of the various attributes of God, that can begin to be confusing. Well, God is love, or God is mercy, or God is holy. And we can begin to identify God with one of those attributes, more so than the others. But that is, we pull those attributes apart, again, as a help to us. God is not part holy, part love, part justice, part mercy, part righteous, part wrath. And you put all those things together and that's God. No, no, no. God is simple. He is all these things fully. And what he does is he reveals the simplicity of his person in various ways to help us understand what we could not understand otherwise. God does not have certain aspects to his being that identify him. He is the fullness of everything put together. He's a simple being. God is God. He's not love only. He's not wrath only. He's not righteousness only. He's 
all those things in one. He's a simple person, not a composite person, a simple. You and I are far from simple. We are complex creatures, right? Emotionally, physically, mentally, psychologically, spiritually. Everything for us is complicated. Everything for us is a process. But for God, it's not. Everything flows simply, perfectly, out of His perfections. And we'll be talking more about that next week. For this morning, I can already begin to anticipate the confusion. I thought we were going to talk about baby Jesus. And man, you have confused us, to which I would say, good. It's exactly what I was trying to do. Not confuse you for confusion's sake. The sermon was intended to begin to move us in the right direction. To whet our appetite to think about baby Jesus rightly. And if this morning you feel a little bit, man, this is so weighty. This God is so heavy. This God, I I feel so inadequate to, to know this God, to think about this God. This God seems so mysterious. Then good. Our tendency is what? What did we say at the beginning? To bring God low. To make Him less than He is. To make God in our own image. To press Him into our mold. To think about Him in ways that we can understand and that we are comfortable with. And redefine Him so that He fits what I think God should be. Well then, what happens when Jesus comes as God in flesh? You have a Jesus like you. You have a Jesus you can treat any old way you want to. But when we start to punt and lift God up to where He is, now all of a sudden, when He comes in human form, we've got one to treasure, one to worship, one who in His essence is the fullness of God right here in bodily form. And you say, well, man, these things are so weighty. The incomprehensibility of God, the trinity of God, the self-existence of God, the infinite of God. How am I to think of God rightly? Well, he's given himself to us propositionally in his word. But you want to know God in this way? Look unto Jesus. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? You look unto Jesus. Because if you see Christ rightly in him, what did Paul say? The fullness of deity dwells. What we're doing this Advent, we're just going to let God be God. We're not going to bring him low. And then when God comes in human form, we're going to let Christ be Christ. And we're going to study that God-man with every ounce of energy we have. 
that we might know God rightly and live unto him. O holy night, the night when Christ was born, not because of a sweet little baby, but because this God had now drawn near. This is a great opportunity for us here at the beginning of this Advent season to rethink who we know Christ to be or who we think we know Christ to be and to realize who he is. Maybe the repentance is in order this morning. Maybe my view of Christ has been far too pedestrian, far too human. He was human, but he was the God-man. But to get there, you've got to have right view of God. Maybe you need to repent this morning of a low view of God. You've sought to make God comfortable to you. Maybe you've taken what God's revealed about himself and his glory and his sovereignty. No, 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 that's not my God. Not my God wouldn't do that. Well, your God is an idol. Repent and run to the true God, the God of the Bible the God in Christ.